Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter of James, Wisdom for Wholeness. Here, James uses Old Testament wisdom literature, as well as teaching from his own half-brother Jesus, to call the church throughout the age to a life wholly devoted to God. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life, so as to make people complete in him. Let's turn to James 1. I'm going to read from verse 1 to 18, give ourselves context, and then we'll get going here. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, brings forth, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's pray. God, we simply offer our hearts up to you, asking you to change us. Would you bless the preaching of your word, changing our hearts to love and treasure Jesus Christ submitting in faith to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This is what we're going to try to do this morning. We're going to look at verse 12 to start, because if we remember from last time, it covered the first half of where we've been already, but it also pushes us forward to see these next few verses. We'll begin by looking at verse 12 as it reaches back, and then it pushes forward to 13 through 18, and then we want to take some time at the end after we explain through 13 through 18. We want to go back and make sure we actually make some specific application. Because when James speaks to us, he is speaking to us. He is not only speaking to the context that he's in. He certainly is. But he is speaking also to Cornerstone Bible Church. So it's important that we start making some of those connections. And now that's where I'll go as some application at the end. So last week I said we went to verse 12, noting that it was a hinge verse. It kind of helped us as we got from 2 to 11. It gave us this hinge reaching back to explain it, but then also reaching forward in that hinge fashion, like I said. We realized from verses 2 through 11, it pointed back specifically to steadfastness. 
that it, it leads to divine favor or true blessing from God. And that it leads towards reward of eternal life with God himself, that crown of life that we saw at the end there. That's what we looked at last week. But second thing that it does, it reaches back like we said, but what the second thing it does is looks forward. It uses this verse to launch us into a very important discussion or qualification about God himself. You'll notice that he uses three key words to tie us back, but then to go forward. So if you look at this verse in verse 12, it said, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Those three words are brought up to bring our attention right back to the beginning. Steadfast, trial, and test. Now look back at verse 2 and 3. You'll see them again. Verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. We covered steadfastness last week, but what we want to take time to do today is look to this word of trial or testing. What does this have to do with these next few verses coming? If you remember, we talked about the Greek word perosmos, this idea of trial or temptation. It has a wide semantic range. It could mean either of those things. Trial would be more of an external pressure that we're feeling, whereas temptation would then lead something, the impulse to sin. By temptation, again, like I said, we are talking about something that would lead us to do wrong, to be rebellious against God. James is returning to use this word again on purpose. It is a link word. It's helping us go from one section into the next section. He's going to use it as a springboard to help us understand the character of God and the nature of temptation and evil. We mentioned last week that James is meeting his audience exactly where they're at. He's a good pastor. He understands their life. He understands that they're going through trials of various kinds. Uh, he knows that the Church of Christ, this newly formed group, was facing hardship in many different categories. So he takes this opportunity to preach in that regard. Remember that he has just told the believers that trials, sufferings, persecutions, hardships, are being used by God. There's a great comfort in this. This great comfort we have from his sovereignty, knowing that his sovereign hand is over all of our circumstances. But there's also a pitfall. There's always also a way for us to take this truth and to twist it and to pervert it so that we can draw unbiblical applications from it. A few weeks ago, I said that what we should never do is take theological implications, what we think to be true about God, as a platform for our disobedience. That should never happen. Likewise, another good principle for us is that we should never be saying too much about something that the Bible doesn't tell us. In other words, we should never be a people that are making our theological speculation our most talked about doctrines. That should not be our pattern. James knows that his audience is likely to use these truths to draw unbiblical conclusions and implications about God himself. Specifically, he knows that this discussion on God's use of trials in a believer's life could easily be used to blame God and to show that then it must be God's responsibility for the temptation to sin. See, James is a very smart pastor. He's perceptive, and he understands the, the human heart. He understands what Jeremiah says when he says, the heart is sinful and desperately sick, is deceitful and desperately wicked. 
It perverts or twists the truth for its own purposes. He knows that we have a tendency to blame others for our failures, for our sin, for our rebellion, for our treachery against God. He knows that we are so wicked that we are even willing to blame God for this. There's a very unhealthy position to blame God for your sin. He says this in verse 13 then, as we get into our text today, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Let me reread that for you because I think this is a legitimate way to read this. We talked about the context of this word. This perosmos could be either trial or temptation. So listen to me for a moment, and I think our context will explain why I'm reading the verse this way. Let no one say when he is tried, when he has been put into a trial, that I am being tempted to evil by God. James is going to explain this more as we go in there, but it's helpful for us to see when I am in the middle of a trial, it's not okay to say I'm being tempted to sin by God. We understand this and we know that trials are real and that they're God-ordained. Think of Abraham when he was asked to sacrifice his son. These are the words that are used in Genesis 22. The text says, after these things, God tested Abraham. He put him in a trial. The same thing when he talks about Israel among the pagan nations in Judges 2. He says, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them. God tests or tries people. He uses tests and trials. He ordains them. And they certainly do not take him by surprise. It is not as though he woke up and said, oh, I didn't know this person was going to undergo this trial. Or that someone would persecute them in this way. Or that they get cancer. None of this surprises him. He is sovereign over each one of these situations. But the accuser, you and me, stands looking at the situation and wants to use the other sense of the word. We want to look at that and say, well, I guess I'm being tempted to sin by God. James, this wonderful pastor, theologian, says, no, 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 no. Let's back up and make sure we explain this well. When you and I are tested or tried, it is not okay to say, I am being tempted to evil by God. Why? Look at the rest of verse 13. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. James shows us that it is not consistent with the character of God for him to even be near evil in any way. God has nothing to do with evil. In fact, he begins by telling us that God is untemptable. There is nothing in God that mirrors our impulse to sin. And so he cannot be tempted by evil. And if this is true, how much more is he, being a righteous, holy, and good God, how much, how much more is he unable then to tempt us with evil? A holy, righteous, and again I highlight, good God does not tempt any man with evil. And so the little plan words that James uses make sense. God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So the natural question for us as readers is, then who does? Who is then responsible for this temptation? James tells us, look at verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by, and we're all sitting there, okay, James, hit us with it. We're ready for this. It's got to be Satan, right? Or, or maybe not. Maybe it's, maybe it's demons, right? It's got to be like the antithesis of God. When he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 
We should be expecting this big flash and bang and like the announcement of Satan running into the ring and I'm just going, boo. Like, like that's the way we should be expecting this to happen. But in this contempt that we have for the person that would be opposite of God, our desire is placed in center ring. And so we realize that it's not demons or Satan that, that, that specifically James is highlighting. Satan is a great liar and tempter of man, but that's not where James is going. James is making us realize that it is us, our own desire. And inside many of us right now, when we got to this point, we were kind of disappointed by this news. Because I'll tell you what, so am I. Because truthfully, we want a scapegoat. We want someone else to blame, to point our finger to. We want to blame someone else for leading us into sinful temptation. It's not my fault. Instead of Satan or demons or the worldly system around us, we realize that the real problem is right here in my own chest. It's my desire for these things. Who's to blame for these things? Changing trials into temptations? Me. My own desire. You see, my desire does not want to count a trial as pure joy. My desire doesn't want to go through the testing of my faith. It's hard. It doesn't want to depend on God. It doesn't want wisdom. It doesn't want to be steadfast. It doesn't really want to be made perfect in Jesus Christ. It doesn't really want to be doing these things, and it certainly doesn't want to be single-minded. It'd rather have its eggs in different baskets and be diversified. That's the safe thing. I don't really want this. I naturally want things that are easy and self-promoting. I want this trial to be a temptation. Why? Well, the, the answer is pretty simple, actually. If it's a temptation, there's an opportunity then for it to turn these things and brings me something. It takes that and says, I can indulge in some way. It lures me and entices me like a fish when it sees that bright spinnerbait come into its view or a, an animal, a predator that smells that fresh meat in the trap and it's lured away. Or if we can use a biblical example, it's like Proverbs. When the Proverbs say, my desire seduces me to spend time and find fulfillment in this beautiful, mysterious whore of anything that is not God. It is strong language on purpose. Anything that pulls us away from our primary affection only to God and God alone is that which is spiritual adultery. You see, when this temptation, when, it, when, it, when this happens, it brings forth something inside of me then that gives birth to something else and then it brings forth something else. You know this because you walk down this and you realize whether it's control or pleasure or power or wealth, all these things serve me. And I realize that this trial can be termed as a temptation and it can serve me. Listen, guys, my, 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 uh, my desire is very opportunistic. It looks at these things and wants to take them for its own good. It sees a trial and sees dollar signs. It sees a trial and sees a way to stroke my ego or helps me then to, 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 to lash out in the flurry of anger and dominance and control or to feel bad for myself and wallow in self-pity. A victim needing to be justified as all these bad things have happened to me. I need someone to feel sorry for me. It's so bad. I'm going through this trial. My own desire changes a trial into a temptation because it doesn't want God to be king. 
It doesn't want any of that. It wants to be king. It wants me to take myself and put it on the throne. Brothers, it is not God who is to be blamed for tempting us to sin, for he does no such thing. It is us. We are the ones who have taken the trials that were given by God for steadfastness and for joy and for completion, and we've turned them into opportunities to exalt ourselves, to fulfill ourselves in some way. Again, whether that's control or power or money or renown or pleasure, whatever the thing is, we take that for ourselves instead of seeing it as a God-given tool of steadfastness that we should see and rejoice in, one that we see that is for the building up of our faith. It is us. We are the ones who have taken these trials and consumed them upon our lusts. But that's not all. Look at verse 14 and 15 together. But let each person, sorry, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. When your desire gets involved and chooses to break faith or commit spiritual adultery and give in to the temptation that is conceived, it brings forth sin. And James shows us where this sin always is going to lead us. Proverbs 2.18, her house sinks down to death. The Proverbs tell us at the end of her ways, sin, when it's fully grown, it brings forth death. The overtones that are stemming out of Proverbs are staggeringly blatant. He's helping us to see this. We know that wisdom leads to life from Proverbs 8, but then in Proverbs 9, it tells us that our own desire depicted as a seductive, seductive adulteress leads us to death. This is what is really happening when we encounter trials and we turn them into temptations. Your desire has taken the God-ordained trial and made it into temptation, conceived sin, and its end is going to be death. Do not for a moment then, brothers, do not for a moment blame God. James kind of does this in verse 16 pretty well. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. He kind of goes back to heighten the command that that we were supposed to view the temptation the correct way. He's already said, don't ever say that you were tempted by God. But now he's placing this big exclamation point on it. Don't be deceived. To believe this would be a lie, and your life hangs on this lie. And so notice how he addresses them even. He's even more than just giving them facts. Not just brothers, he says, my, my beloved brothers. I told you last week that he uses the word brothers, or maybe it was a couple weeks ago, 20 times in this short book. Only three times does he call them my beloved brothers. It's for a very specific purpose. He doesn't overuse this. He is trying to get their attention. I'll give you the passage, 116 where we're at, 119 and 25. The first one says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. 119 says, know this, my beloved brothers. Trying to get their attention. And then 25, listen, my beloved brothers. There's this huge sense of urgency, like you need to clue in here, my beloved brothers. He grabs their attention with this idea of affection towards them. You know I love you. Almost like when I want my kids to pay close attention to something that I say based on my love for them and the importance of the subject. 
James as a pastor is like me as a father. We were at Chesapeake Arboretum uh, a few months ago. And I don't know if any of you have been there. We enjoyed a short hike through the woods, heading back to the car. And the Chesapeake Arboretum is great, except they have one major flaw, I would say, and that's their parking situation. The trails and the woods are all over here, and then there's a road, and the parking is on the other side of the road. So to get into the trails, you have to cross this road. And to come out of the trails and get back to your car, you have to cross the road. Uh, on this particular day, we finished up hiking and came back out of the woods. And Hudson, my son, kind of broke out a little bit in front of us, which is fine. Except he broke out and then went into the road where traffic was coming. Not, not a far way off either. If you're a parent or you've been around a situation like this, you know what this does to you uh, and what could come out of your mouth. It was a very serious situation. I was terrified as a father, saw it flash, like everything was slow motion. The conversation I had with him afterwards um, was very loud and quite serious. It went something like this. Hudson David, I love you. You cannot run into the street like that. You have to be aware of your surroundings. You cannot run into the street. I do not want you to die, son. I love you. And so highlighting with my sincerity and my severity, I was saying, I love you. Do not, not listen to this. You must listen to me. James is doing something very similar for us. It is life and death that he is bringing to us, showing, and we learned this from last week as well, to choose life. But he is saying, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. You cannot do this. He goes on in verse 17 to explain why this is so important and what we have to rely on then. Verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He's not a God that tempts with evil. He doesn't give bad gifts like stones and serpents. Rather, he gives good gifts like wisdom. He gives perfect gifts. Notice that he uses that word again that teleos word that we've been working on, that idea of wholeness, that idea of single-mindedness, that idea of perfection, that idea of our insides match our outsides, that we love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, and mind, and we love our neighbor as ourselves. These are the types of gifts that he gives. He, gives. he goes back to us and reminds us that he's the one that gives wisdom of a singular heart, a generous heart that is willing to give this. He's undivided. He's single-minded. And he then gives these perfect gifts, those things which make us perfect as well and, and single-minded and whole. He is one that does not change. He's not like what we saw before as a, a wave of the sea that's, that's wind-driven and tossed. He is rather the father of lights, in whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. There's a very interesting word picture he uses. We've already seen him talk about flowers and sea, and now he's talking about the first time he brings up God as the Father. That has creatorial language in it, like the Father of creation. But he's going to heighten it by saying the Father of lights, these celestial bodies. We're talking about moon, stars. We're talking about those things which are grandiose and far above us. But the description calls on something glorious and powerful, the lights, and puts God above it as their creator. 
and as one who is not like his creation. He's not like the lights, even though they're magnificent. He does not move throughout the heavens like the stars. He does not change. There's no variation. He does not act like the sun and the moon, having their rising and their setting, causing shadows. This is not who God is. He does not act like that. He is the Father over all these things. He does not change. We can be sure of him then as our firm foundation, unchanging, perfect, and single-minded. This is the God that James speaks of. This God is not like us in our desire. This is the God that we serve. So then we ask this question. We should ask this question, at least James preempts us and says, should I give you an example then of what it means to be a giver of perfect gifts? Verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Instead of salvation coming through our own white-knuckled efforts at faithfulness, he has regenerated us by his own will, something we were never able to do. What a beautiful and glorious truth. I feel like I could preach 10 sermons out of this text alone on the glories of Jesus Christ and his love for his people. Undeserved, unconditional. Brothers, let us glory in the God who was the first mover, the one from whom the foundations of the earth were laid, but before that, in Christ, he predestined us. That is glorious. He is to be trusted, and he is trustworthy. It is this God, then, this God, the God of all creation, who has chosen to bring us forth as redeemed sons and daughters and as new creatures, new creation. He's not just referring to all of creation here. He's referring specifically to those who have been saved, redeemed, his people. The reason I say that is wrapped up in two parts. The first part is the agent of salvation here, the word of truth, by the word of truth. Who is the word of truth? We all want to jump to say Jesus, and that, by extension, that's true. But the word of truth is used throughout the New Testament specifically to refer to the message, the good news, the gospel. Let me explain. There are two passages I'd like you to see. You don't have to turn there, but I want you to hear them. Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Colossians 1.5, he says this, Of this you have heard before, in the word of truth, the gospel. James is saying then that br this bringing forth is done by the gospel. And so we're not just talking about general creation overall. He's exemplifying and making sure that we can see an example of new creation, redeemed creation, his first, a first fruit. Also, we get to that in a second. This idea that he has redeemed them by the gospel. But then again, like I said, the why of this is all that they might be, that we should be a kind of first fruit of his creatures. That has the idea of a treasured possession one that is close to him. It's used many times throughout the scriptures. I want to point out one to you that's so helpful. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says this. Paul says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. His saving work puts us in a category of those that are treasured possession, first fruits of all creatures. James is showing us clearly then 
that God, the Father of lights, who does not change, is a giver of good and perfect gifts. And he exemplifies this by showing us the glorious gift of redemption to believers, the gift that takes us and makes us a treasured possession, taking you from darkness to glorious light in Jesus Christ. But there's something else I want us to note that I keep, like, bubbling about to my wife and to the elders. Look in verse 18. You don't have to say it out loud, but what is the main subject and verb here? It's pretty simple grammar stuff. What's the main subject and verb? It's he brought us forth. He brought forth us, in other words. He brought us forth. We've been talking about all the details around this truth, this bringing forth, this regeneration. But what is the significance of this phrase, he brought us forth? I want you to look at your Bible again, all right, and look at verse 15. Go right back up to it. I want you to see this. I'm not making this up. Remember then the subject of this sentence is found inside us, our desire. Okay, here we go. Verse 15. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth. We have the exact opposite things happening. We saw when our desire gets involved, it eventually brings forth death. But with the will of God, we see the exact opposite. What we see is that he brings forth life, redeemed, vibrant, blessed life, truly then in God's favor. That which is his special possession, the first fruits of his creatures, is what he produces, what he brings forth. If we ever doubt his ability or his goodness, we have only to look at our own redemption in Jesus. God is not a tempter to evil. You and I, our desire, are what's responsible for that. God is not that. Instead, God is one who is sincere, undivided, ready to give good gifts to his children. And, for, and if you forget that, remember that he was the one that brought you forth out of darkness into glorious light. Jesus Christ making you the first fruits of his creation. We've worked through these, these verses. I want to give you three applications. You, there are probably several. Number one, you and I must believe that trials, not temptations, you and I must believe that trials are from God for your good, and therefore we ought to rejoice in them. We ought to rejoice in them as being one who is being refined to greater strength and faith in Christ. I want you to think of a, an illustration. If I were to give you a dumbbell or maybe like a kettlebell weight, and I said, I want you to lift this several times in a day, and I want you to do it again tomorrow and the next day, and then I want you to maybe carry these around with you. And my purpose in this is always also for, the, for your own interest, that you would grow in this way and be strengthened. You can pick it up and you can choose to do that, or you can do otherwise. But that's not the intention of my giving it to you. I asked you to do a certain thing with that. That was for your good and to make you better. My intention is to test and prove and refine your muscles and you as a person. It is only when you twist that desire and get involved with that dumbbell as something that is annoying, heavy, hard to handle, something I could beat someone else over the head with, something that someone could trip over, something I could use as a paperweight, None of the intention that I asked you to use with it. 
we so easily can take that trial and see it as something for us, not doing what God has asked us to do with it, which is count on all joy, something that is for our good. I think that we have a very hard time believing that trials are good and that they are for our good. And so I'll just say it because I need it from my heart. We must believe that these trials are for our good as we trust God. It is working our faith out, causing steadfastness, making us complete in Christ so that we lack nothing. And it is for our joy. That's the first application. Number two, though, this is what was just constantly convicting to me all week. I have a lot of things to convict me all week. Number two, don't change trials into temptations. Don't take the trials that you're dealt and turn them into temptations. Each one of us encounters trials of various kinds every day. I don't even know all the different trials that you encounter. Probably you don't even know all of them because you just let them come by, come by, come by. You may encounter the trial of various kinds that's a cancer in your family or extended family or you. You may be confronted with the trial of lust. You may have four children who are a constant source of various trials. You may have a terrible boss who truly is a trial for you. You may be prone to depression, and this trial constantly looms around you. You may be dreading the next deployment and dealing with the next move that you might have to make. You may be dealing with the trial of success and money, and praise, and renown. This too, brothers and sisters, is a trial. We learned this in a few verses prior to this. You may be encountering a huge promotion at work where you've been placed on a pedestal and lauded as one of the best in your field. You may be meeting trials that are simply loneliness. Those are trials, and they are good. They are for your good. You may be dealing with the trial of an unsaved spouse. You may be in the midst of a trial of someone treating you poorly or wrongly. Whatever the encounter is, whatever the trial is, it is God-ordained. If you don't believe that, then you don't believe what Scripture says. Call out to God asking for faith and wisdom to see this. this is the truth. James has already told that to us. By the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, these do not, though, have to be temptations. They do not have to be turned for our own self-promotion and betterment that we think is better for us. James calls us instead to fight. When these trials come upon you, which you already are knowing about, let them remind you that you have an enemy within your hearts, your own desire, that wants to take these things to make them temptations to turn your heart away from God the one who loves you and gave himself for you, the good and perfect good gift giver. This will be a mistake. Believe the truth then, brothers. These trials are for your testing, for your faith. Therefore, as you are confronted with various trials, don't indulge yourself in making these into temptations. This is very practical, guys. You're going to have it happen to you. Again, I listed a ton of stuff. I don't know which one is yours but it's going to become so easy. I want you to recognize that when it happens this week, oh my, I just turned it into a temptation. And I just indulged in this. Self-sorrow for myself or pleasure or to get my own benefit out of this thing. Each of those is for your steadfastness. 
Call on him then for wisdom, for faith, and strength to endure through the trial. That's exactly what he wants for us. Number three. I just have to say this because you know it, but we forget. And I need the reminder. Jesus is better. He is not a second to us getting more material gain or for us to be hashtag blessed by all the material stuff. He is better than all of these things. We already know this, but since you and I need the reminder, I'll say, God, the Father of lights, has given us nothing but good and perfect gifts, and most importantly, in his Son, the revealed word, word, Emmanuel, God with us. We then partake of who he is. We talk about this in communion. He is our food. He is our drink. He is everything to us. And because of that, we ought to then not have anything else to say but God, you are above me. And it should end in adoration and worship to our king. But that is to say also, treasuring him means then partaking of him, knowing him, preaching the gospel to yourself that Jesus is better, that that is better for you. We have Jesus Christ, and there is nothing better. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. We rest in you and Jesus' work in us. We thank you for the sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, we rest in you and ask that you would take these words, drive them deep into our hearts, give us faith and repentance. May you be honored and glorified in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For other sermons on the book of James and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.